0: morning brother how are you yeah
1: i'm good tell me why you're in your car
0: i'm in my car because i went to a wedding yesterday um and to be frank i'm very tired it was a very beautiful wedding it was a wedding which was extremely lavish and i have reservations which you are fully aware of in terms of weddings um (laughs) but for our safety reasons, in terms of the podcast running smoothly, it's better for me not to be in the home office. And unfortunately, I was unable to go into our office office this morning. So it's, it's better for me to be out here so the kids do not become um, attendees to the podcast. Is this what adulting looks like now? You you're, you're... <laughs> you hide. Yeah, you, you spend a lot of money to find places to hide. Um, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I like that. Um... How's your week been? It's just been brilliant, bro. It's yeah. actually been very, very good. And it, it links to a conversation we had offline previously about fueling yourself. And I'm trying to ensure that that hierarchy of me fueling myself spiritually and physically is not dropped. And doing that, it just, it just sets the tone for each day. And it allows me to be a lot more strategic in my thinking and my doing. Mm. a lot less running around and a lot more sitting thinking about what should I be doing right now
1: well as we always say um creativity comes from rest and we often don't practice what we preach so I'm glad to hear that you're 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 delving into that um what have you been doing specifically what activities you think have have helped you refuel
0: it's my mornings I was explaining to this to a guy at the wedding yesterday and he thought i was insane i'm just saying that i've developed a habit over the years of waking up very early um now it's only let's say 4 30 to 5 when i do wake up i try to spend quite a bit of my first hour just sitting um some people will refer it to it meditating i refer it to it praying and I'll, I'll, I'll read i'll read something which i find inspiring um something fueling for me and for me that's the bible um and after that, I will spend a bit of time exercising at home again because I, I can't get to gyms as often as I'd want to. Uh, yeah. But whilst doing that, again, I will listen to something which edifies my soul. So what you'll find is I'll have maybe an hour and a half in the morning, most mornings, where it's just me being fed. Where I'm not actually serving anyone else. It's not extremely selfish, but if we are going to be high performers we need to almost treat ourselves like formula 1 cars which have regular pit stops which are catered for even more so than the drivers absolutely and
1: as i hear you talk about that i feel like you've you've reached that that point that we were discussing probably about 2 years ago where we needed to find balance and when i listen to a lot of very successful entrepreneurs performers individuals in general they've got a routine they've got a routine and they stick to it religiously even down to the food that they have for breakfast etc and oh. it sounds like you've you've picked that up and that you're running with it so i'm glad to hear it i'm i'm sure nigeria and your your holiday abroad had had a part to play in this this kind of new ethos long may it continue
0: amen to that, that <laughs> the holiday definitely did it was a forced stop And a moment to see life from other people's lenses, Mm. Um, multiple people's lenses, people who were struggling, people who were struggling to find something to do because they had no struggles. So it's very interesting to see how people lived.
1: And uh, speaking of uh, seeing life through other people's lenses, welcome to Expensive Lessons. You see that transition there. Um, Hold on. Thank you, I appreciate it. Welcome to Expensive Lessons, ladies and gentlemen, where company directors share with you the experiences that they've learned on their wide-ranging, winding journey. Um, And today we've got a treat for you. I told you that we were going to be sharing with you guys some incredible entrepreneurs with some, some very interesting journeys, and today is no exception. Um, today, we've got a very special guest for you, um, and I'm really looking forward to delving into this. We have uh, Kweku Dapa, who is uh, one of the founders of a very interesting brand called Dapa Chocolates. Um, Dapa Chocolates is a artisan, dairy-free uh, chocolate brand, which sources all of its cocoa from from Ghana. Um Uh, Kweku is at the helm of this very interesting brand, um, as well as um, a slight shift at the digital and learning content lead for an an organization called Your Startup, Your Story, um, which focuses on helping uh, startups kind of position in the market. Uh, So from from that perspective, able to um, not only support uh, startups with... uh, practical academic advice but also is practicing what he preaches by having an organization himself um as well as that you can catch kweku on the um over the bridge podcast which is a podcast talking about um young people's experiences um after after cambridge so um Dapper, um, sorry, Dapper, uh, Kweku, welcome to the podcast. Um, we're very grateful to have you today and we're looking forward to delving in.
2: No, thank you guys for having me. And, and likewise, it's, um, yeah, it's an honor and pleasure to, to join you guys today.
1: Good stuff. As I was saying right at the beginning, um, very appreciative of the crystal clear clarity mic that we have here. <laughs> um, love it. So yeah, everybody, you're, you're in for a treat. Um, so Kweku, um. First off, I, I'd really want to to delve into to Dapper Chocolate. So I did my best at describing uh, the the company briefly, but I'd love mm. to hear it from from the founder himself. T- tell us more about the the organization.
2: Sure. So um, yeah, I think you kind of covered the basis. So yeah, we're a dairy free artisan chocolate brand. Um, by that meaning, we produce all of our chocolates um, from the bean to the bar. Um, it's all in house production um handmade by myself and my brother primarily at the moment. Um, and essentially we started Dapper Chocolates as a somewhat of a social mission. And um is 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 a funny origin story just because I think when I tend to tell people about that business, um it's one of those situations where the the perception of of the of the type of business we're running and the image of the founders doesn't necessarily coincide. When you think about the kind of artisan craft uh, industry, whether it be like beer or you know the different types of food products and and other craft products, um, it tends to have a very specific kind of hipster white middle class uh, uh, market and also um, founders. But um, yeah, essentially. We started to have a chocolates, um, acknowledging that you know our country of origin ghana is one of the the largest um producers of, of cocoa um second to our neighbors in ivory coast and despite that fact a lot of the value that is created from the global chocolate industry which is you know upwards of 100 billion dollars um only a small percentage of that is actually seen by the growers and smallholder farmers themselves so the idea of Dapa Chocolates is how can we actually add value to the raw uh, materials that grows um, in Ghana. And ideally as an example to other um, so-called developing nations in the as particularly those from the diaspora who can maybe take advantage of certain privileges they have to um, cultivate the, the raw materials from their home nations and produce something of added value. Um, and. That's really been our ethos around it. How can we add value to the raw materials that are available, create a, a luxury product um, that we can share a, f- a higher percentage of the, the value and the profits with the, the farmers themselves to improve their standard of living. So um, that's, that's our, our main mission. Uh, the, the long-term goal is to have a sustainable solar powered factory back in our hometown, in our in our, our, our mom's town of Sesshi. In, in Ghana to really see that mission go forward and to employ local people etc so yeah that's 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 pretty much us no I love it thank you so much and um on expensive
1: lessons one of the common themes that we seem to see when we speak to founders is the the origin of their idea comes from some form of social want or social need. And that's mm. the the fuel that, that drives them. Um, and we try to pull out some of these common threads and, and almost weave it together as a set of lessons that people can take away. So from, from your point of view, uh, you and, and your brother, how important was the social dynamic in founding and actually growing uh, Dapper Chocolates?
2: Yeah, I'd say that it was it was really cool to be honest because um, I think with with the product itself, neither of us really have any background in kind of culinary skills or cooking or anything of of that nature. So we were really kind of going outside of ourselves and outside of of our um, comfort zones to even think about producing chocolate. It was it was it was a very steep learning curve in that respect. So if it wasn't for the social mission, I don't think. You know that's necessarily something that we would have naturally kind of fallen into on the um, product wise. So I think that's really what 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 powers the the whole thing. I think both the 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 social mission and also the family run element of it. So um, creating something of value that can generate wealth for the family and for the local community um, for years to come. And something that can actually um, you know, have a legacy long term. So, yeah, I think that's, 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 that's super cool. And I think the, you know, if it wasn't for the social mission, you you may have kind of got, you know, gone into something completely different, who knows. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, yeah, no,
1: I, and I, I think I see the social, um, mission, uh, woven into the brand, so I've, I've had some of the chocolate myself and the Culture of of Dapper Chocolates is very clearly West African. Mm. For example, there are um, chin chin. Um, there's chin chin chocolate. I mean, if you don't know what chin chin is, just Google it. I'm sorry, guys. I'm not <laughs> but there's 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 chocolate which has pieces of chin chin in it. There's chocolate with plantain in it, um, which which kind of screams at you West Africa. Mm. Um, and one thing I can say about a chocolate is it's very high quality. So. It's from my perspective, you, you, I wouldn't be able to tell that you guys didn't have a culinary background. Um, so I guess moving moving slightly onto the, the more practical element of it, th- an idea was formed to to develop this this brand all around chocolate. Maybe you you had the the, 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 the spark, the idea of you know let's let's use some of these raw materials in our, in our homeland to produce uh, this this high quality chocolate but what was the step from neither of us know anything
2: about um you know culinary skills to mm.
1: let's make a chocolate bar
2: yeah <laughs> um well firstly thank you for the for the compliment i'm glad that you've, you've tried the chocolate and you enjoy it um so yeah you, you you're right as far as like just just referring back to the point you made like us uh really injecting west african culture within every element of we try to as as much as we can every element of the product itself so the fact that we source our cocoa from Ghana the fact that we source some of the other um, ingredients from other locations in Africa as well whether it be the sea salt whether it be the cocoa butter um, the the coconut milk that we use as well Um, so that's that's a really big 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 part of it and the kind of packaging and the way we present the product itself so I'm glad that you picked up on that um, as far as the, um, how we kind of got into actually, okay, from inception of an idea to actually making the chocolates, um, it's funny. So I was, I was actually in Ghana at the time. Uh, I think this was t- 2000 and hmm, maybe 16, I believe I was, I was out there on a, um, unrelated kind of, um, social enterprise program and I was working with some startups, well, yeah, I guess people with the intention of creating kind of small community-based businesses um, with an organization um, from out here, from in the UK, and I was leading like a team of volunteers that were kind of helping some of the community members to to set up small businesses using kind of like the lean model canvas and a lot of kind of typical startup principles. Um, and whilst out there, I think particularly when you're working with entrepreneurs and young people in general there's there's, uh, there's you know a, a kind of a spark and an energy that you, you catch which I think was probably latent in me anyway because I think I've always had somewhat of a slight entrepreneurial bug to some extent I think um, just uh, growing up and having to find little ways to make extra pocket money when <laughs> when, when you won't really get any um, so um, being out there I think that was only the only grew more and at the time my brother had just been to Ghana Um, he had visited um, our mum's village and our uncle had taken him on a tour of our grandma's um, cocoa farm and I think the idea initially kind of started rolling in his head just kind of seeing the reconnecting with our, our culture our family and I think the idea probably started ruminating in his head first and we unfortunately missed each other during that trip because I was in the Volta region which is kind of like on the, the East um, and, and yeah, he was kind of on the West. So um, we missed each other by a couple of weeks, but he gave me a call. I remember I was in a hotel and he just said, Hey, um, I think I might've been on Skype or something like, yeah, I've got this idea. Um, I'm thinking of uh, us making chocolate. And initially it was kind of just, it was just sort of random, like chocolate, Where you, where's this coming from? But I think because we know, uh, and, and it's good that we, we have good conversations with our, our dads and our moms so they, they can kind of give us context of our previous generations. Um, but cocoa is, you know, staple products of the, the Ghanaian economy and particularly for our families on, on both our maternal and paternal side, they've been involved in the cultivation of cocoa for, for several generations. So um, it makes sense, I think, the idea of taking what is or using what is, um, Essentially, which what has paid the you know the school fees for our mum, you know, what I mean when she was a kid, um, the elements of um, what is already around us um, to to create something of of, of value from it. So, um, cocoa uh, and chocolate. Seeing the disparity between the price that the farmers receive for just selling the the raw cocoa in its in its raw form compared to the likes of the, the massive. Kind of chocolate companies and and the huge profits that they see when they export it, um, it, it just made sense that this is something that you know that we can we can we can kind of tap into. And I guess it's, it's somewhat daunting uh, one because you know we're kind of going into an industry which is you know somewhat monopolized by by very big companies. But um, at the same time, we saw the potential for um, a kind of quality luxury niche market um and also i think um we were kind of tenacious enough to say okay this is something that we can learn i think one of the benefits of of us both being i mean i I was probably 23 or 24 at the time Uh, my brother's 18 months older than me so we're kind of native to the the online um, world in a sense. So kind of doing research online and finding out how to do things. So it was literally the case of scouring the internet, um, connecting with people that are really in the market, um, having phone calls. Um, I had, uh, there was one particular guy and I'll I'll shout him out. So actually, because he's, I think it seems, he was was quite a prominent figure in the kind of bean-to-bar chocolate um, worlds in general, but the chocolate alchemist, he has loads of content he used to put out. He had a blog where he talked through the process of making chocolate. So we literally spent hours like reading through that experimenting. We managed to get like a small, um, piece of equipment called a Mollinger, which actually is what we use to grind the, the cocoa beans to the, um, to, to, to essentially what becomes recognizable as chocolate. Um, and so we found, uh, uh an expensive, piece of kit that you know we've kind of been bootstrapping from inception and use that to start experimenting and um luckily over time and and funny enough actually from our maybe our first or second batch we actually managed to make some chocolate which was you know edible you know it was, it was pretty good if i could say so myself so um that's when we saw okay cool we can actually do this we got a bit of feedback from our, our parents and, and what have you they were like oh this is really nice um and that's when that really started the journey of, okay, let's actually start documenting the process of making the chocolate. So whilst we're learning, we're showing what we're doing, um, um, online, particularly on social media and, um, yeah, as time developed to I me mean, were testing more, experimenting more, tweaking our recipe, tweaking the formula. Um, we just, I think we just got better and better with it and um by the time we actually went out and put something out on the market i think there was you know probably a year a year and a bit in between when we actually started experimenting and actually bringing something out into the market so we really didn't take we didn't we didn't rush we we took our time to um perfect what we were trying to do and make sure that it is of high quality before we bring anything out but we were transparent at the same time of showing our journeys from like like we had pictures on Instagram of like the first, as soon as we bought the machine and like just showing the document and the process so that people can see and grow with us as, as we were growing. Um, and that did well to create our initial kind of market, our, our first maybe let's say hundred customers or so, or people that we would have, would have seen us grow online and um, had interacted with us. Um, what now is a, a very clear, uh i guess influencer marketing um industry at the time it was just us like sending stuff to people that we thought would be into the chocolate and getting them to just to try it and then if they liked it to post it online and that became like a thing that uh, helped us kind of grow the brand initially as well so um, i'm jumping to like loads of different different things here but it's all uh, interconnected but um yeah that's that's kind of how we ended up I mean I'm very happy
1: to to let let it run when people are sharing gems um and I think what you've just shared you you you've indicated so many I think really acute acute aspects of good entrepreneurship I think one is do your research first of all mm. um delve into it so you started to just consume information um test your market and in this instance you're you're your, the the test of your value proposition was with friends and family very early on. I mean, being able to put a product in front of people very early and say, does, is this good? Is this worth it? Um, know your mission, which I think it was very clear. I think it's clearly intertwined with, um, with everything you do. The heritage of the brand um, was around even before it was created, which I think mm-hmm. is lovely. Um and, and then from, from a marketing perspective, um, using the ecosystem, using technology, using social media to um, incrementally grow your business. And you mentioned bootstrapping. We, we often talk about bootstrapping from a product development standpoint, but you can also bootstrap from a marketing standpoint, which is start with the people around you who like mm-hmm. it, get them to promote it, and then they will promote it to other people who promote it. And then you can get so much earned um, earned engagement and media through people who just are actually f- fans of the product. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to bring Afalabi in in a second, but before I do, I'm going to steal a question which I know is on his mind. So I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm going to ask you the question. Um, we we always want to try and investigate whether entrepreneurs are born or whether they're made. Um, and I want to I take a step backwards before I go forwards and ask you about yourself. You mentioned very... Uh, subtly earlier on that you know you've been hu- you've been hustling for a while um my first hustle was um selling donuts uh, during school break in secondary school mm-hmm. um I would <laughs> I'd buy a pack of 10 donuts for a pound and then sell them for 30p each and that was my dinner money um yeah.
2: what was your first hustle that you can remember oh, I love this question man um yeah it was it was somewhat similar actually to be to be fair it's, it's funny so I went to um I went to a grammar school in um, in 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 kind of like in between. I don't know if you know Sutton. I don't know which part of London you guys are from, but um, I know Sutton. Yeah, yeah, so so kind of like Surrey, kind of sub suburbs of London, South London, and um, we we'd come in, get the train from um, Elephant and Castle. We lived on the Halsbury Estate in. um, War Road at the time. So you get the train, wake up super early, get the train to this leafy suburban area. Um, and for us, it was like the first time that we saw, um, for one, I'll give a bit of context. So I went to primary school in Peckham, it was like 70% Nigerian. So it was the first time I'm going to a school where now I'm a clear minority as far as um, ethnicity, but then also as far as like uh, social, socioeconomic background, I guess, um, I was, I was with a lot of quite privileged, well-to-do kids. Um, so I think for us, when we noticed that people were spending like £5 a day on on, on like lunch and what have you, and we were kind of like, <laughs> I think we had £10 for the week or whatever. Um, you know, it's okay, cool. Like there's, there's 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 a clear distinct privilege that some people have and and like visiting friends uh and, and seeing their houses and then seeing where we lived and stuff is kinda like, okay, cool. We're seeing we're noticing the difference. So it's like, okay, cool. I think that kind of breds the, the feeling of okay, we well, need to try and make money. And I think just the area you grow up in anyway, it just tends to breed that kind of that kind of feeling, I think, with young with young um young guys. So um first hustle for me, um probably wasn't so much the sweet stuff. I had a lot of other friends um that that was selling sweets and chocolates and, and that kind of thing. My first one I think was um knockoff trainers, knock off air forces. <laughs> so at the time. This From Elephant first...
1: Castle.
2: Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> so um this is a these are when, you know, I guess Air Max ninety fives, Air Max nineties, Air Force Ones, um at the time we were able to get them in Elephant and Castle, I believe if I remember correctly I was getting them for like two full 50 pound um and I'll sell them for like 40 pound each so I'd get a nice little margin um selling training to like school friends um these are Bebo days or so actually so I mean some of the listeners might be a bit young I'm not sure but um Bebo is like a a, um yeah kind of like a a a Twitter or like a, a Instagram like a precursor um, and yeah, I have pictures up of the various trainers that we had to sell, um, had customers that would just like DM me and then, um, link them in person, which was kind of dangerous at the time that I think about it because you never really know, like some sketchy characters could anyway, but yeah. <laughs> so yeah, my first house was selling like knockoff Air Forces and, and Air Max 90s to, 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 my friends and like people online. Um, that was fun. I'm, I'm sure,
1: I'm sure the line was booming. Um, I, <laughs> you um, did all right
2: for a little while yeah it was, it was, it was a small, small hustle but it allowed yeah. me to you know when you want to like buy food go little go little trips with your friends go on little little dates or whatever on, on the weekends and what have you <laughs> give you a bit of pocket money so it was nice i love that you.
0: no that's incredible um and i have stolen a few of my questions i, I don't want to take away from gatha chocolates but i do want to ask about um, social enterprise and your mother Mm. So previously I was going to ask, okay, did Dapper Chocolates make you into an entrepreneur or was it a byproduct of you being an entrepreneur? And I think you've already shown that you already had the entrepreneurial spirit. So I'm, I'm keen to understand where that social enterprise comes from and also for you to elaborate on the foundation your parents gave you. Mm. I asked that because, likewise, I grew up in Peckham. Um, I was really wasn't too far away. Went to Woolf School whilst you went to a grammar school which would have been a journey from Peckham. Mm-hmm. Um, where does that social enterprise foundation come from? And, and what do you feel was it invested in you through your parents?
2: Wow, that's a, yeah, that's a deep question, man. Um, so I think for me, I kind of knew quite early on that I needed to do something that has some form of social impact. Um, and that became more and more evident to me whilst I was at university actually so i kind of had the idea that i might go into like investment banking or something of the sort so um at university i was quite i was prior to university at school i was i was was kind of academically i did quite well so um i was a bit well-rounded at the same time so i wasn't too sure whether to go into the sciences or to pursue kind of like more humanities subjects so up until the point where i really had to make a decision i was i I studied a little chemistry maths economics and biology just to leave medicine open as a potential and then leave like you know everything else so ended up studying economics at uni um i remember going to um they had like these like spring programs and, and various programs with investment banks um that essentially is touch points to kind of mold people that want to get into that industry to so that by the time it comes to um kind of your time to graduate you have like a job in in um ready for you essentially and you've learned how their their companies work so i went on a few of these kind of programs um prior to and at university and um i think I I noticed myself always asking. So, what's like the? Uh, uh, would you? What's kind of? Firstly, asking about like work-life balance, and asking about, um, you know, talking to the individuals because they tend to kind of get all of the the new graduates and stuff to come and speak to the prospects and um, ask them. So, like you know what kind of value do you feel like you're adding and how do you like just asking them that real questions like how do you feel about actually working here do you enjoy it that kind of thing and not to say that people don't enjoy their work or have you but i think more often than not um the responses that i received kind of made me feel like okay this probably wouldn't be a great fit for me um and then i started looking at other uh, other areas and initially i looked at um, potentially kind of going down a civil service route. So I did an internship with the cabinet office um, over the summer. And um, yeah, again, had, had had a great time. Um, it was kind of looking at policy work. It, it married my, um, my background in economics and then um, my, you know, ideals of doing something that impacts um, society at large and uh, research and that kind of thing. So that was interesting. Um, but then ultimately I think with with policy work it's kind of you're quite separated from the results of your your labor in a sense so um, you may be working on a piece a piece of research and you know for one you're not see you're not seeing necessarily it come into full fruition but also a change of government can can quickly make whatever work you were doing become redundant so um, I kind of saw that and thought, okay, maybe that's not the the route I'd wanna go either. And then it was actually when I went on another program in in Kenya, I was out there for about three months, immediately after that that internship. So after I graduated at this point, and that's when I really saw um, how entrepreneurship can change lives. Um, it kind of empowers individuals to change their financial situations and situations for their family. And I saw that up front with working with um, young founders in the communities in um, the kind of Rift Valley area of, of Kenya. And that was like the best three months of my life, like like for, for multiple reasons. For one, the type of work we're doing, seeing the impact, like working with the, the local entrepreneurs and um, also local volunteers as well, forming relationships. On a social level as well, I think um, being in a in a black country for the first time, um, and and not having to really acknowledge my race for the first time as well, which was which is an, a crazy experience as well. Like looking back, um, but I think that's when really the the roots of okay, whatever I do when I come back to the UK has to have some form of social impact. That's when that really took, took foot. Um, and I think also just in our family settings, um, it is we just, I think it's just natural to you help out family when you can, you help out whoever you you can it just is it kind of comes quite naturally to us. But I think probably subconsciously as well, like, like you said, I never really linked it necessarily to my upbringing directly, but, um, we grew up in a, a Christian household. Um, I went to Catholic primary school, etc. So I think those kind of like values of of community and 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 um, doing what's good for for others and, and and that kind of thing probably was was quite deeply entrenched in me naturally and. I guess my mum was a very good example of that for, for her and her family members. My dad as well, he's the oldest um, boy. So like a lot of his siblings actually moved to the UK after, and I saw like how he helped people as far as like getting the immigration status um, confirmed and citizenship and he, he, he kind of became the hub for the family on his side, bringing people together for um, occasions and making sure that there was a, 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 a close family unit. So. I think seeing all of those things may have had an indirect impact as so. well. Um, but yeah, I always felt like uh, there's, there's some, there's something I need to do to give back. I, I, I acknowledge like a lot of privileges that I, I had, um, growing up as far as, um, you know, it's, it's funny cause in the, in the work I do now, the, the, there's a lot of talk about privilege and white privilege and that kind of thing. And, um, Despite you know growing up in Peckham and and all the all the other things kind of socioeconomic wise I always acknowledge like super privileged as far as my education those are privileged as far as like having um two like active parents involved in my life and all of these various things um so I always feel like there's some if in some shape or form I can give back and, and support other people to overcome any barriers they have that's something that I, I want to kind of do as well so that's essentially really been the motivating factor in all of my career choices essentially, really. Um whether it be the the work I do now with YSYS um with with startups, because primarily work with startups um and, and founders from um underrepresented backgrounds. So, you know, female founders, um, ethnic minority founders, etc. Um and then also work I did previously within social mobility, and even with the podcast of Over the Bridge, like a lot of what we do is 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 talking about the challenges we faced as as um, black men in, in in these privileged institutions. But um, one of what we wanted to do was like demystify some of those experiences as well to encourage um, you know young young black people to have high aspirations and, and, and aim essentially for, you know, the, the best that's out there for them as well. So um, that's really carried through in, in, in all of my endeavours and I think is, is something that is kind of a non-negotiable in some respects. I feel like if, if I don't have that sense of like I'm doing something to benefit others, it, it doesn't really I probably won't do that great at it ultimately <laughs> even if like I'm competent enough to do it. I think my the lack of motivation will probably seep in. Um, so yeah, I hope I hope that answered the question. I kind of rambled a little bit. No, it it,
1: it definitely did. But you give me a real painful problem quickly. So um, now I'm at a I'm at a fork in the road because mm. your experience is so multifaceted. I could either ask you. I could spend the rest of this podcast talking about Dapper Chocolates and <laughs> a lot of the difficulties and challenges that you undoubtedly face bringing that to light. I could talk about your experiences with YSYS and your experiences talking specifically about um, working with founders, some of the challenges that they face, and how that might intermingle with your own business, and mm-hmm. then we could even talk about um, your experiences as a black man in Cambridge and how that has probably shaped you in this journey. So I'm stuck.
2: Um, <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> um, there's a lot of material, but I'm an... happy to interweave stuff as as and when, like if it, if it makes sense, you know, I'll bring in anecdotes yeah. <laughs> and No
1: problem, no problem. As I think this is definitely. Um, Good fuel for maybe another episode somewhere in the future, yeah. um, but okay. So I want to I want to ask you a very brief question, and then I want to to move down into to, to talking a little bit about YSYS. So the first question we talked about um, the, the role that kind of social responsibility played in your 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 the creation of, of your brand, and one of the decisions that you made um for dapper chocolates is that it would be dairy free. Um and yeah. I, I'm I'm very keen to understand the the reasoning behind
2: that decision. Mm. Yeah um that's one of these these especially when you work with um a co-founder yeah there's there's times when um you speak from the perspective of both parties. Um this is one where I could selfishly say that I was my ideal. <laughs> so um with the dairy free um Taking a dairy through, I think at the time we we were saying, okay, we want to make chocolate. And my brother was very keen on trying loads of different styles.
0: Mm. And
2: I'll what I noticed is that for one, we need to be able to distinguish ourselves quite clearly from incumbents in the market. So um, I at the time was pursuing a, a, a plant-based lifestyle. Um, still do to an extent, but very much more relaxed of it than I was at the time. I was, I was essentially Mm -hmm. like vegan at the time. And, um, I think that gave me as far as like the people I was interacting with online and, and that kind of thing. And it gave me some insight into that world and, um, the concerns that people that decide to go, people that do decide to go vegan, um, have partly ethical. Um, so as far as the, um, kind of welfare of animals, um whether it be the environmental impacts as well um and um yeah there's there's so many different like things that people were thinking about which which kind of like drew them to go in that direction and um I think yeah some of some of those really resonated with me um and I knew okay, cool, if we're gonna find a way to distinguish ourselves that's a market that is underserved because there aren't at the time especially um it's changed a little bit now but i think the the only chocolate you could really have as a a vegan was um dark chocolate there wasn't really any milk chocolate or white chocolate alternatives um as far as like number wise but then also even as far as like quality because i did try a few and yeah um ultimately yeah i wasn't i wasn't too impressed and uh, i was just speaking to other uh other like vegans and plant-based people they were like yeah there's there's no like real good quality chocolate i can eat so when i discovered that um i pitched it to to to, to my brother rath and i was like listen um i think we should really double down on 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 the dairy-free chocolate um because that's that's something that's like easily distinguishable from what's already out there, um, outside of our kind of our heritage and our story and, and everything else. Like we are serving a market that is under, we can serve a market that is, is underserved at the moment. Um, and then I think here yeah, when when I started, I think we started off with that, and I kind of convinced him to okay, let's 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 kind of pursue that. And as we started um, on that route. Um, experimenting with alternatives to dairy milk um more and more things just started to line where it was like okay this makes a lot of sense so our alternative that we use is coconut milk and um coconut again is is one of those things particularly if you know from west africa but also a lot of other kind of like you know you know the islands and what have you that like coconuts um are abundant and and you know, people, you know, outside of the, the street, people would be like with guy with machete with he's um, <laughs> chopping the coconut for you. You can buy it from the, on, on the corner and what have you. And that really spoke to our heritage as well of the West Africanness, and And it, it really met with the um, the idea of it being kind of like a Pan-African diasporic brand as well. So um, that works really well. And then I think as well as that, um, once we started speaking to and, and, and um, connecting with, um people that are now quite quite big uh, vegan uh influencers and what have you on, on social media um it just made sense like yeah there's clearly a market here there's clearly um people that really you know value a a, a good quality high quality luxury dairy free chocolate um and we thought okay cool let's 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 literally just double down on it and um Yeah, since then, I think it just made perfect sense because that's a market that's only growing. I think people becoming more and more conscious of their consumption traces. Um, It's funny enough, I did a bit of research, kind of like desk research after the fact, and saw that um, I think between, I want to say 2014 and 2018, the number of people that identified as vegan quadrupled in the UK um, as well as that search um, kind of Google trends, people searching for veganism or dairy free or whatever had like, yeah, multiplied multifold as well. So like, I was like, this is a, a trend that's clearly growing. People are starting to recognize that having a, um, a vegan diet is better for the planet. Um, and we just seems okay, let's be on the right side of history as far as like with the business or like to, to ensure that we're serving that market and have a good stronghold there. Um, and, and, forward. and Dave,
1: and even for the people who aren't necessarily vegan or live in a plant-based lifestyle, a mm-hmm. lot of people from the diaspora actually have complaints when it comes to digesting lactose. Exactly. So there's definitely an, an an overlap there, not to mention actually just the proliferation of alter- alternatives to, to dairy simply because of... A lot of the the critique around the 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 dairy industry in general so it's clear that you you, you've done your research there and i think the the key lesson there is for for people listening make sure you do your research and understand and um understand who your market is and Mm -hmm. what they want because once you understand that then you can differentiate yourself which is exactly what you did um and it's clear listening to you speak that you have quite a well-honed entrepreneurial approach, which I'm sure the people that you work with um, within YSYS would would benefit from. Um, So I want to ask you a little bit more about that, maybe two questions back to back. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about your role at YSYS, what you do on a day-to-day basis, Mm -hmm. and what what you tend to notice some of the the challenges or shortcomings of some of the startups Mm -hmm. that you work for tend to be. So if there are any kind of regular trends that you come across
2: as these are particular areas mm. where people keep tripping up. Mm. Yeah. So I think, um, so yeah, my, I guess my, my firstly, my role at YSY. So I started off there um, as a entrepreneurship program manager. So I was, I was running a, a very specific, um, well, I designed and managed the, uh, I guess what we coined as a, a pre-accelerator program. So kind of like pre MVP, straight ideation stage, excuse me. Um, how do you go from there to um, having something, well, essentially validating your business idea, essentially, is what we landed on. So when I first joined, it was very kind of open. It was, they wanted us to run some form of entrepreneurship program. It was a bid with the, um, the London Mayor's office. They had something called the Digital Talent Program. Um, so acknowledging that the digital sector is going to be growing over time. They wanted to position um, London in particular in in the best place to accommodate um, that change in the economy. So yeah, one of them is through digital entrepreneurship and um, yeah, we had kind of free reign as far as like how we wanted to run the program. And um, after the the first one, um, I kind of landed on the idea that, okay, if we're getting people that are coming at early kind of like idea stage, what they really want to do, during a short period of time is, and, and this is something that Abiola, you you kind of touched on early on is like, you want to kind of find out all the assumptions that you're making about your your business, test them out with um, your target audience and essentially validate whether or not some, this is something that you really want to put in time, um, effort and money into with kind of increasing your your level of confidence and also reducing the, the risk um, attached to, to starting up a, a business. So um, I ran, I basically designed and managed that program. We ran about four cohorts of that over the course of about 18 months. Um, the the last two of them we had to actually run um, virtually because that's uh, when when kind of the pandemic ensued and and yeah, we had to kind of, the lockdown occurred and we had to do everything online. Um, but yeah, I had great fun, worked with over 50 entrepreneurs on that particular program um some of whom have gone on to join more established accelerator programs and um received investment so um yeah shout out to all of the founders I've, I've worked on and a lot of them interestingly interestingly enough and i think it's is a trend as well is that they're all working on startups that have a social objective in mind many of them um so yes it's always amazing to be a part of their journey and kind of be a mentor to some of them um, and primarily i was working with 18 to 24 year olds on that particular program but i think when i joined that ecosystem i started connecting with people within the the space that you know from all different backgrounds that were working on on really cool things um, um so yeah in 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 that role kind of my day-to-day now looks quite different to when i first started because that we're not running that program in exactly the same way. Um, now it's more so kind of a community and incubator where we run various activities over the course of the year, whether they be office hours, uh, events with, uh, some of our investor partners. So we have partnerships with a few different VC firms, um, as well as, um, events that we do kind of more on an ad hoc basis with, um, Kind of domain experts within the startup ecosystem. So you know we have people in in our community who are you know digital marketing experts or who do have expertise when it comes to um, or consultants or or have expertise in finance or how to put together a good pitch and communication and that kind of thing. So running kind of workshops and and masterclasses as well is a big part of that. Um, and um, yeah, just essentially being a source of support for for very early stage founders in any aspects okay cool i have an idea maybe i'm not too sure exactly how i want to proceed with things um it'd be good to or maybe they're a bit more established but they want a community of other founders that they can um connect with and and share advice and share ideas or um kind of that peer-to-peer support and 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 um yeah that peer support and network and then as well as that um Helping to close, and I think in in this kind of just in the second question, what are some of the the main issues that they face? Is um, I think there's a funding gap really for particularly for black founders, but ethnic minority founders in general. Um, it just it it ends up being the case that black founders tend to be in in the BAME category. The black tends to to kind of see the brunt of of those issues that face um, it, those those subgroups more generally and um i think i mean there's a number of reasons for that i think is is not a straightforward answer i think people tend to uh, particularly investors tend to connect with and invest with founders that they are more similar to as far as mm-hmm. background um it could be through the there's kind of like very tried and tested routes Um, whether it be universities, so kind of going to the Oxbridges, going to the LSEs, going to the, these, these top universities, um, and, and, and really like sourcing talent from there, which means that there's a whole, uh, you know, a a huge amount of entrepreneurs and talent that you're, you're, you're never really connecting with because of that. Um, I think there's kind of natural bias against, um, Um, certain groups as well um, which has historical (laughs) (laughs) long long historical reasons uh, behind that as well which 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 even on a subconscious level I think can 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 play a role Um, but yeah I really think like the main the main issue that we face is is like a, a funding gap and particularly in the UK as compared to maybe America where they're a bit more advanced where if you have an idea you can you can you know, you can you can get some venture capital in particular, or some some angel investment just off of an idea in in America. Um, you can get 250k or whatever from someone who likes the idea, likes you as a founder, thinks okay, cool, there's something here. Whereas I think in the UK, investors are have a much higher risk, um, a much lower risk appetite. Um, so yeah, they you, you tend to require a lot more traction there's a lot more um, due diligence, a lot more kind of um, evidence of, 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 of success that's required before you even get your initial investment, which can be a huge barrier to, to people that kind of just trying to get their foot in the door, essentially. Um, so yeah, we, we we try to basically, in, in whatever way we can, whether it be forging connections with um, the industry, with, with investors, um, and also kind of on a community level, um, do everything we can to kind of limit some of those barriers. Um, you, you've highlighted a
1: really, really interesting point, which me and like we talk about quite a lot. Um, and it's the old adage of, you know, when you're from a minority background, you have to work twice as hard. And that's something that we we, we come across in our day job all of, all of the time, really. We, mm-hmm. we interact with founders on a regular basis and and see some great ideas that just don't generally have the support um, unfortunately, I haven't come across a, an easy answer. I think it's for it's organisations like yours that that help bridge that gap um, quite quite a bit. Um, I think my advice to people who are um, relating to what Quayku is sharing is: yes, um, it is difficult. Accept that it's difficult, and and you know don't let that be a hindrance at the moment. Uh, a couple of things specifically would be to broaden your view of what you think an investor is. Some mm. of us, we, we look towards VCs, for instance, and say, you know, if they're not going to invest in my idea, then maybe it's not a good idea. But what about the person who, you know, the family friend who who's sitting on some money, who just doesn't know where to put it, for instance? Mm. You know, the first people that you should pitch your idea to should be the people around you. Um, and, you know, they can provide you with some confidence and maybe even some startup um, seed. Um the other suggestion would be to compound. Um, if you if you do have a, a an MVP, a, a product which is functional, which you could potentially sell, even if it's not 100% perfect, if people are willing to buy it, then that's fantastic. Um, take every penny and put it back into your business so that you can upgrade your product, you can iterate, and you can make it um, even better. And I think the last piece of advice that I would have for, for people listening would be to take advantage of social media. One thing that we tend to do, especially in the black community is we hold, we hold onto our ideas very tight and we don't really give it very much oxygen or very much sunlight. Um, But even in the very early stages, sharing your passion, sharing your idea, sharing your, 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 your vision for the future on, on social media or with your, your, your close network is a great way to give your brand some oxygen. And Quaker is, a, is actually living proof of that. When it comes to dapper chocolates, that was one of the early things before the product was even made. Hmm. Uh, he was sharing his journey with people so he could validate it, but potentially could have also got some support. You know, people hmm. then realize this is something that we, some something real, something that hmm. we can can put, put our, our investment into. And even if it's not investment, maybe it's I can share this post with yeah. six or seven other people so that more eyes are on it. So, um, I completely relate to the challenges that you're sharing, and I I don't know what the solution is, but hopefully that you know those are some lessons that people listening can take away um, and 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 run with. Um, Afalabi, I want want to bring you in um, in in a moment, uh, but but before I do, I I want to um, I want to ask a question about uh, Dapper Chocolates and. When, when we we've spoken about specific challenges uh for for some of the founders that you've interacted with but for dapper chocolates um you know it's it's a complex business because it's an international business you're mm. you're working with suppliers um in africa and you're, you're selling products in the uk um uh, it's also a business which is uh, somewhat different from what you'd expect millennials to be focusing on in that it's not a it's not tech platform is not, I guess, it's not a digital uh, business. It's not an app. Um, and, and therefore with, with that comes some quite acute logistical problems, especially during a pandemic. Mm. Um, so my question around that is, um, what, what challenges have you faced logistically, operationally delivering your products, especially during a pandemic? Mm. And, um, what recommendations would you have to people who are in the startup space and looking at maybe more traditional styles of business and not necessarily going down the the tech route or the digital route?
2: Yeah. Uh, Great questions. Um, So um, in regards to the, to the first one, so yeah, I mean, we had so many challenges on the way, I think even, um, prior to the the lockdown um there were just challenges as far as like learning the craft really just like how to actually make chocolate and uh particularly i think one one thing we had was over the um when we were first learning and we wanted to kind of share chocolates and and, and and send chocolates off to people um we started learning how to make the chocolates during winter so the, the climate was obviously very different to when uh, at one point in the summer, when we wanted to start actually posting the, the chocolates out. So we didn't know like <laughs> all, all of the real things that you should do in order to make sure that the chocolate leaves uh, obviously, leaves your um, the post office or whatever in, in, in one condition and how it's going to arrive. And, and it was literally just through trial and error and getting a few disgruntled customers. Um, to be fair at the time they weren't really customers they were getting it for free so i guess there was, a, there was some leeway that was provided but um it would arrive and they say that it was melted um and actually that's something that 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 happened again when we um more recently actually so we had quite a, a big order that came in from la so there's a a um I guess the similar kind of artisan confectionery uh, specialist confectionery store in 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 l a and they reached out to us online really loved the brand um, wanted to to basically test out um by selling some of our products in their store and um of course we 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 kind of packaged it as best as we thought you know would would, would kind of sustain the journey and what have you but Forgetting that obviously the weather in, in Southern California is very different to the <laughs> to weather in the UK. So, um, yeah, by the time it arrived to them, um, we found out that, that, well, they let us know that it actually melted as well. But um, they were happy to just kind of stick it in the fridge and and I think it didn't go too out of shape. So they, they were happy to stick it in the fridge and, and, and kind of sell it the same way. But we, again, were very, very particular about quality and making sure that it's, it's, it's at the highest standard when the consumer um interacts with it so we we sent another package we sent like uh, we put some ice packaging to to go with it as well so that by the time it arrived um yeah it was still in a good state so that's one thing we had to learn on from kind of logistic perspective when you're sending some of your products to um areas where it's a different different climate then yeah you need to ensure that you you have everything in order to ensure that the quality is, is, is maintained throughout that journey um, and then in regards to lockdown specifically, yeah, we had some issues, particularly with our um, packaging. So we source uh, some of our packaging because we, we use biodegradable um, uh, biodegradable molds for the, the chocolate bars themselves. Um, and we try to use yeah, sustainable materials with, with everything we do. So sometimes you have to source from outside of the UK for that. And yeah, one of our suppliers for the packaging um, had to close um kind of indefinitely during during the lockdown so um that put us in in quite a precarious situation because there was no kind of clear idea at the time of when things were going to go back to normal so that was that was a bit worrying um at, at the time actually we had to essentially go on a bit of a hiatus so we we and and one good thing i think about the fact that we've been very transparent on social media and interacting with our customers and stuff, is that by the time, you know, when we had to, when we have to give like negative news, for instance, they're, they're as equally as supportive as if it was, is good stuff because you kind of built that rapport online. So um, yeah, we we went on a hiatus for ended up being maybe I want to say maybe four four months or so where we weren't producing at all. Um, and um, luckily our, our suppliers um, were able to kind of get back into operation um, within that time. It was quite difficult to find alternatives in, on, in the short notice and stuff. So yeah, but but they, they managed to get back online and everything. So, um, but that was a challenge cause it was kind of the uncertainty around, okay, cool. Are we gonna be able to find a, another supplier that can um, produce what we need in time and, 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 and get everything in ready for when orders were coming in? But it was a good time for us to also kind of take a break and uh, reevaluate where we are with the business and what we want to do moving forward. So um, I know early on um, I love like you were kind of talking about uh, having an opportunity to have dedicated time where it was just you kind of thinking about yourself and, and kind of taking care of you, of what you need to do in order to serve um, your family and, and, and your work um, better. I think we had a, a kind of similar situation where it gave us time to kind of work on some other things we were doing, um, come back a little bit more refreshed as well. Um, but yeah, that was that was, that, was that, that. So we kind of used it to advance as best as we could. But that was a challenge that, yeah, we we, we did struggle with a little bit. Thank you and and that that last question
1: was just around you've got a, a more traditional kind of business which requires like logistic logistical and operational and physical um, tasks mm. um, a lot of the startup founders that we interact with tend to be people wanting to create um, digital um, solutions like whether it be mm. an app or a platform or, 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 or some sort of um, network yeah. um, and as somebody who interacts with many um, startups yourself, what advice do you tend to have for people who are delving into that space or maybe not considering any kind of more traditional business models?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting one because, yeah, I think a lot of the founders I work with are all kind of like developing apps and, and things of that nature. But at the same time, there are a good proportion that are kind of in more traditional um businesses where they they deal with like physical products particularly those that are kind of in the, the e-commerce space as well so like there's a few um there's a few founders in a community that are within the kind of like black hair space and um they're still yeah, quite traditional with that regards to creating kind of skin and skin products and hair products and that kind of thing um um what i'd say is I think do 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 what's best for you ultimately. I think if if you have a, a digital product that is um that you've kind of tested and there's there's some traction you see and and you see there's a lot of potential there. Um obviously one of the benefits there is the uh kind of the, the kind of marginal cost can be you know significantly lower. <laughs> um and and yeah, if if you if if you kind of like hit a, a good market and, and 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 get traction, you can you can make quite good money, um, quite somewhat passively to an extent. Um, so yeah, I understand why a lot of people kind of see that model and think like that's 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 amazing. But at the same time, um, for me, I feel like we we're still all going to need some element of traditional business. Um, we're still going to need kind of bricks and mortar businesses as well. We're still going to need physical products where uh, as much as a lot of people spend, I mean, more and more, we spend more time online and on our phones and stuff. Um, I think I still value like having a physical product and and the tangibility of having something in your hands. Um, and as humans, I don't think that's anything that's, that's ever going to really kind of fully change. So there's still a lot of value that can be had from that. Um, Mm from having in-person uh interactions um yeah so i'd say like no firstly like you you don't really want to go into business unless you well this is my perspective of course but like you're solving something that um people demand for one so if you if you realize like you know this is something that you know people people need that i'm in a in a good position or i can position myself in a good position to, um, help solve, um, then, you know, follow, follow that. Um, whether that's digital, whether that's, uh, more kind of like physical products, um, is, is, is kind of, um, yeah, neither here or there to, to that extent, as long as you're, you're actually solving something for your, your customer, mm. um, primarily. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Um, Lobby.
2: Thank you, Quico. Um,
0: Like Abby, when I've been listening, there have been so many questions I've had to almost filter because of time. There's there's so many things that could be potentially asked. And as a co-host on Expensive Lessons, I'm also a listener. And I often try to think about, okay, what might the listeners be asking? What might they want to ask if they could? Um, Often you've spoken about purpose indirectly. And it's something that Abby and I have spoken about a few occasions where for me listening to you, it sounds as if you question purpose from an early age. That may have been something which was imputed into you, Koku, maybe something which just was always part of your very fabric. Mm. I don't want to refine this question too much, but what are your thoughts on
2: purpose? Mm. Yeah, that's that's again a very deep question because it's actually something I've been thinking about quite a lot recently as well. And it's something that that Um, I think you're right to say that it's something I've been thinking about from quite a young age. um, And I probably only began to acknowledge that more um, clearly over the last year or so, but I think it's something that's just inherent to, and I want to generalize and say humans, like we, we, we need some, some sense of purpose and, Sometimes I think that can be pushed aside to some extent by society or by, or we find purpose in in places that are somewhat subscribed to us, prescribed to us, I should say. Um, whether it be you know financial goals, whether it be um, I need to you know I need to be a millionaire by thirty, I need to you know have this type of car or all these various things it it tends to kind of have a bit of a materialist slant from from our perspective a lot of the times um and i question more and more how often it is that we as individuals find a sense of purpose from really observing and thinking deeply about what we think we have to provide to the world um, as individuals as opposed to what we think the world essentially taking in what the world seems to be projecting as far as what 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 makes you valuable as an individual um so for me purpose um my my understanding of what purpose is has changed somewhat initially it was very much um very much outward looking but i think I've become a lot more internal. So where I think about um, connection and connection with myself, understanding myself, understanding um, who I am. I, I feel like there's a core that, that everyone has, like understanding who I am at a core and what I then can, um, from operating from that very authentic place, what I then can give to the world. So I think there's, there's, there's a interaction between the internal and external where you, you kind of need to be operating from your most authentic self, because this is something that is, I think dictates what it is that you are meant to do to some extent. Um, if you're kind of following a, a route that's been prescribed from outside, you're not you're 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 I think you're only doing yourself a disservice ultimately because when you're doing something from a very authentic true self, you're doing it to the best of you, you, you only you can be you to to the best of your ability to like to to a fuller, fuller extent and to the most effective extent. So anything kind of outside of that is somewhat of a compromise, which um which I feel like isn't doing yourself ultimately justice from like a, when you look kind of like reflect on, on, on life from like what you've, what you've been able to inject into the the rest of the world. Um, that's super key that is coming from an authentic place and that you're using what has been gifted to you through experience and through whatever, whatever's innate to you. Um, that's something I've been thinking about a lot recently. And, um, part of that for me as well i think is connection to god so um and it all ties in honestly because i feel like even the way in which you connect with god is, is 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 reflected in how you the work you do is reflected in how you approach life how you approach business how you interact with individuals um it seeps into your values it seeps into literally everything how you how you conduct your day like everything can become a ritual to some extent like everything can be an act of worship um that's something i've, I've really started to, to notice like the way in which it, um so just, just for context as well um I, as i said i grew up in a christian household um a couple of years ago i converted to islam so um there's a lot of and it's good because there's a lot of continuation obviously it's another Abrahamic faith and, and what have you. But one of the things that it teaches you is the idea of your fitrah, which is like your innate disposition. And um, the, the, the the innate disposition is to want to connect with God into there's certain things that we, when you can kind of walk on that path, on that straight path, which is in line with your innate disposition, everything you do can be like an, an act of worship, an act of service to God. So smiling at your neighbor is an act of worship. Um, he even says, and this is something I think is so like, because it's, it's, it's in quite strong contrast to, I think a lot of um, Western perceptions of, of Islam, for instance, is that um, is, is very kind of like, uh, like sex negative or like very kind of um, prudish and that kind of thing. But even like, how you um interact with your your partner is an act of worship sexually like so so many so many different things like that we kind of take for granted you can see as 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 an act of worship so um i don't want to waffle on too much now but like what what essentially what i'm trying to say is your purpose i believe is connecting with your innate disposition your your true authentic self and from that from that place, then going out and serving others. And whether that be helping others do the same, whether it be through acts of charity, whether it be through setting up a business and employing people and how you how you deal with your, your employees, paying them fairly, um, making sure they have a good balance, whether it be um, just I think just how you 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 treat people and the world. Um, and the conscious decisions that you make through all aspects of your life, um, being from that authentic place—that's um, that's that's your purpose—to serve that and to to serve God through those acts. I hope that made sense because I was kind of just yeah, it was kind of a stream of consciousness. But um, yeah, <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it, it
1: it made perfect sense. And if there's anybody who listening, it didn't make sense to just listen to it a few times. It will. Um, but um... In- interestingly what what you've just described what we've just finished on um takes this takes this whole podcast almost through your journey up the um maslow's hierarchy of need mm-hmm. um it, w- it we we started off talking about you coming from a, a background very similar to ours where there wasn't very much in terms of uh, financial security um economic security Um, And therefore, you know, your aim was to make sure that you had enough money to support yourself um, and just buy general things, food, water, be able to go out. And, you know, then you looked at through your business, a way of developing more personal security, more long term legacy, not just for yourself, but for your bloodline, for your family. Um, and as we go up the, the 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 kind of discussion towards purpose we talk about the connection with individuals and developing that love and relationship and intimacy with, with people and finally get to a point of self-actualization so for me that was kind of a, a beautiful journey from bottom to the top of Maslow's hierarchy of need which um,
2: I wasn't expecting at all when I started this this uh, podcast today um, uh-huh. Neither was that. That was beautiful. I love the way you, you tie that in. Cause yeah, you are right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
1: Kwaku we're, we're really grateful for your time. Um to 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 just take yeah. us through your story. Um, and I can quite comfortably say that we haven't even scratched the surface, really. There's so much more that we could could delve into. Um, but I, I'd say for the listeners, I there are so many gems that I hope people can can take away. Um Afalabi, <laughs> I'd like to to hand over to you for final thoughts and then uh yeah, we can, we can, we can say, say goodbye to the listeners.
0: For me, it's a thank you also. And it's mm-hmm. a, a summary of a lot of people might be listening, thinking, how do I do that? As opposed to listening, thinking, how do I do what I could do? Mm-hmm. And I think, quickly, you've articulated the need for us to look internally um, so that we can actually give out I think if expensive lessons is going to be of any form or benefit, it's not to marvel at the companies which are being showcased, but to explore the individuals behind the companies and the decisions that they've made and how we can potentially make the same decisions. So quick, I thank you for actually sharing your time, sharing your insight, sharing your knowledge and sharing your wisdom. Um, and in this very strange way, I was thinking about this earlier, here, I'm going to say it anyway, um, as someone who came from that background, like well, we're proud of you. Um, and usually you'll have like, the, olders, the elders, the elders, those, those, their 50 year olds, their 60s, saying that. <laughs> but it's very easy to have grown up in the Damilola Taylor generation in, in, in Peckham, in Southeast or Southwest London, and mm-hmm. to choose a different path. And uh, an understandable path could have been just economic security. But I think you've seen and you've showcased to all the listeners that. There's more than that. And potentially the expensive lesson is only pursuing economic security. Hmm.
1: Um, Where can people find you, Kwaku? Yes, that's true. where, true. where, Where
2: can we find you? Yeah, um, I mean, firstly, thank you. Thank you for the kind words, both of you. And yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Like when I, when I kind of um, speak to, to, to our founders or just people in general, it ends up somewhat being therapeutic for me as well. So it was really nice to kind of talk through um, some of my, my thinking and, and my experiences. But um, yeah, people can find me um, personally at, um, on Twitter, uh, kwekudapah, K-W-A-K-U-D-A-P-A-A-H underscore. Um, uh, for Dapper Chocolates you can find us on Instagram and Twitter um, Dapper D-A-P-A-A-H Chocolates um, on on both platforms Um, and yeah happy to connect with people um, stuff I do YSYS at this is YSYS on on Twitter and Instagram as well so um, yeah various ways that you can can find me thank you bro I love you sorry I interrupted you no thank you um that's me
0: getting carried away connect people Um, if we've learned anything it's sharing who you are sharing your ideas and seeing what comes as a a result and being transparent Mm -hmm. Um, have a great week everyone Take take care